And uh, these words of Torah are for Moshe Binyamin, Ben Ephraim Yosef, and his Neshama Shed Heaven Aliyah. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We have a... Just, uh, I just want to start with a couple of stories. Something uh, unbelievable happened this morning. I'll give you just a little history leading up to it. So we had uh, an all-day program here for Tisha B'Av. Everybody knows that Tisha B'Av is the, sort of the, the saddest day of the Jewish year, which is going to become the, the happiest day of the Jewish year. So that in itself is kind of like uh, just a remarkable construct. But anyway, um, on this day we were sort of gathered together and there was... Um, there were, there were more people there, and, and we were putting on tefillin, and there wasn't enough tefillin for everyone, because there were some people who, who didn't have any. So we thought, oh, what would be a really good idea is if we just made sort of like a, uh, sort of like a, a campaign, like this second, like, let's just buy a pair of tefillin. So we said, okay, we're going to buy a pair of tefillin for the minion so that there's a standing set over here in case anyone doesn't have any, and... No one person is allowed to buy the whole thing because that's an idea in Pirkei Avos that um, it's good if everyone chips in. And they even, like you would think, like if someone steps up and says, I want to buy the whole thing, that that would be the best thing. Believe it or not, the rabbis, the sages say that person actually has a bad eye because he's denying other people the opportunity to participate in the mitzvah. It's sort of a surprising thing, you know? Because I would have thought that's the best case scenario. One person steps up and then it's all over. But so I, 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 with that in mind, I said, no one person is allowed to buy it all together. Everyone's got to chip in. And within seconds, we had a set, right? So, so it's been standing here. It took a while to get. We got a really nice set. And then it's been here for the last couple of weeks and no one has put it on because the regular sort of like attendees have their own set of tefillin. So... So we thought, you know, there was a conversation last week, who's going to be the first person who puts on this tefillin? And then someone said, well, you know, we should, it should be someone really special. Someone really special because they'll sort of like, this was their idea, they'll sort of like imprint it. So let's get someone like really special to put it on first. And then, you know, and then there was another idea which was, you know something? This is a good fundraising opportunity. <laughs> Let's auction off the right for someone to be the first person to put on this set of tefillin. Okay, so that was the conversation. I sort of forgot about it. But on Shabbos morning yesterday, Rabbi Freeman said, remember you were going to auction off the, the tefillin. And I was like, oh, okay. So I stood up there and I said, okay, we've got this brand new set. We're auctioning off the right to be the first person to put it on. And one of the women raised her hand and she, she, she made the winning bid and, you know, the, that's the opportunity for, for her to appoint someone to do it. By the way, halakhically speaking, a woman can put on tefillin, but usually that's done in private. It's not such a common practice, but it's not, it's, it's certainly by many opinions acceptable. So anyway, that aside, so, so this person bought it, very holy, beautiful person, Rachel, she bought the right. And then I didn't have a chance to talk to her about the details or anything like that. This morning, I come in and her father is there. Okay, so now it's not so simple. Who's her father? Her father is 90 years old and he's the survivor of five death camps, including Auschwitz and Dachau. And is fought in three wars in Israel and he says this is the first time that he's put on tefillin in 70 years and you know alright that's story number one <laughs> that just happened this morning a lot of people in the room were here for that. Okay, story number two. Um, I, I just, I, I wrote a, a, a piece, I just wrote a piece, it was just posted today on uh, h.com. Uh, if you can take a look, I, I, I recommend it. I'm biased, but I like it. It's called uh, A Short Guide to a New Head. Um, and uh, anyway, so 
I don't, mostly I'm giving talks, but I'm, I'm writing very little. I really am desperate to write more, but uh, anyway, s slowly, slowly. So, so I wrote this piece. I don't know when the last piece I wrote was, but whenever I write a piece, I try to get it out to as many places as possible. So Friday, Friday, I received uh, from three places, um, I have the emails from Friday. Yeah, we're going to run the piece. We really like it. We're running the piece. We're running the piece. Okay. So, so good. The next day, Shabbos morning. Um, so, just the introduction to the piece is this idea that Rosh Hashanah can mean a new head. Because, and, and actually, the editor of the, one of the places I sent it is a, is a scholar and wrote back to me and said, you know, I really want to, I, I don't know how Rosh Hashanah means a new head. Rosh means, Rosh means head. Shana comes from the word Shnui, which means to change. But when you change something, it becomes new. Okay? So, so he said, you know, I, how about a, a, a short guide to a changed head? I was like, no, 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 I can't, no, 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 that doesn't work. No one wants to be changed, and no one wants to change. This is, I said, people want something new. <laughs> very different, very, very different. So I said, it has a negative feel to it. I, I don't want that, you know? So I said, you can rephrase it to, or I gave him an alternate phrasing so that the new head was was uh, acceptable, you know, on a, on a scholarly level. And he accepted it and ran it as a short guide for a new head. So why, where did I learn this teaching? Where did I learn this teaching, a new head? Uh, from Yedidia Blanton, Oliver Shalom. And uh, it was his yard site, this, this, this week is his yard site. Yedidia ben Avraham is Neshem Shadav and Aliyah. And he used to speak every year at the Happy Minion on Rosh Hashanah. I used to always have him speak second day because I felt like if he spoke first day I wouldn't be able to follow him because he was so good. And it was like I didn't want to subject myself to that level of stress. So it's sort of like let him, let him speak next and I've done my job and then everyone can love him and I'm done. So anyway, anyway a, 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 a thought that he shared and probably the last time I heard him say it I don't know four, five, six seven years ago I don't know was, it was that many years but the idea of Rosh Hashanah a new head like that always stayed with me okay so like I said Friday this past Friday I got acceptance letters from three places they're running the piece. Shabbos morning, we finished davening. And at the Kiddush, you know, you set up a, a long table with some cookies and some grape juice, soda, whatever. There is a, a uh, someone has made a standing poster board with a color picture of Yedidya on it. On the, on the Kiddush table, and in 22 years of the Happy Minion, approximately, I don't remember ever seeing a colored picture poster board in the middle of the Kiddush table, ever. And there's a short quote underneath the picture which says, Rosh Hashanah means having a new head. Now he's been gone from the world for a year. I didn't know it was his yard sign. <laughs> and of all the things he, of all the things if you're going to write one thought it's not even Rosh Hashanah yet we've got weeks till Rosh Hashanah it was the exact thing and there's a picture the color picture of him is there is of him smiling just with this like wonderful smile on his face like huh? huh? <laughs> huh? <laughs> Rabbi Freeman was standing right there and I just was like, I mean, just blown away. And I told him what I just told you. 
And he just shrugged and said, Neshamas, meaning souls. Right? The world, if we had the eyes to see, we would see the souls swimming around us. If we had the eyes to see, we would see the souls swimming around us. It's not, it's not a joke. And as I explained to you before, Rabbi Kaplan explains that one of the reasons for the central nervous system is actually to block out this level of stimuli that we would normally have. Because it would just, it would short circuit our brains basically. We wouldn't be able to function if we saw the environment and the enormity of what we're surrounded by. We would not be able to function. So actually part of the job is actually to, to block these things out, believe it or not. It sounds counterintuitive, but that, that's what it is. That's what it is. You know, it's such a balance, too, because I remember there was someone who had really lost her mind, and it's not even... I, I'm just talking from a clinical standpoint. She had lost her mind. Just, I'm not using that phrase, uh, you know, you know in, in a colorful way. And there was a very experienced, seasoned rabbi in the community who had been, you know, a pulpit rabbi for decades. And he said to me after he spoke with her, after she was just, you know, just spinning craziness. He said, I don't know if, if, if she's crazy or if I'm crazy. Right? Like, who's really, like... See, but the thing is, is that at a certain point, you have to say, this, this is the world that I function in, and I have to obey by the, the normative reality of this dimension, and, and that's just how I have to proceed. You know, there's a, there's a classic Rebbe Nachman story about a king, and this advisor comes to the king and tells him that the, the wheat crop from that year has been infected by this fungus. And he actually puts a footnote there that there is this, 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 this fungus that, that, that can induce in people um, the effects of LSD. So this is something that's just been observed in, in just the natural, natural community. So the advisor tells the king that, um, you know, if whoever eats this crop, and everyone is going to eat it because that was their food for the year, right? Whoever eats this crop is going to go crazy. So there's a discussion between the top advisor and the king, should we eat the crop or not? So he said if we don't eat the crop, everyone is going to think that we're crazy. Do you understand? Because the reality of the community is going to be crazy. So anyone who's not thinking in this crazy way is going to be accused of being crazy. So what do you do? If you don't eat the crop, you're crazy. If you do eat the crop, you're crazy. So what do you do? So the king says to the advisor, here's what we should do. We should eat the crop, right? Which is, that's an amazing thing in and of itself, that a leader has to be with their people, right? He doesn't say that point. That's my, my point. The king says, we have to, we will we'll eat from the crop, but, but, we're going to put a sign on each other's foreheads to indicate to each other that we're crazy. And, you know, Rabbi Nachman reached the end of his life, and he, or I don't even think it was at the end of his life, I think it was before then, where he, his, he said, my Torahs have become too deep. I can't explain them anymore and that I can only tell them in story form at this point. So, by the way, I, I once heard that the Ari HaKodesh had a thought that was, it would have taken him 75 years to explain. And I believe it. I absolutely believe it. Because basically, the way I understand it, this is my own visualization, is imagine several mountaintops. Bless me. Imagine several mountaintops. Now imagine a thought which was the interrelationship between, say, five mountaintops, right? But in order to explain that thought, you have to explain five mountains worth of, worth of material. Do you understand? To get to the point. So, so 
encoded in Rebbe Nachman's stories are like the deepest, the deepest truths. And just on a simple level, the sign on the forehead is the tefillin. And, you know, we have to understand that um, we have to live in this world. But if, if we think that there's only this world, we actually are the crazy one. Right? But if we only accept the greater reality, which is, which is far outstrips the littleness of this world, then again we're the crazy one. So what do we do? We have to live within this, but we have to be able to access the greater truth simultaneously. And that's what the Torah mitzvahs are. That, that's what the Torah mitzvahs are. The Torah allows you, it grounds you. Remember what Reb Shlomo used to say all the time. What's the hardest thing in the world to do? To have your head in the clouds and your feet on the ground at the same time. Right? That's what Torah allows you to do. Because Torah is the most exalted, macrocosmic, amazing, expansive system. At the same time, though, we're putting up lettuce to the light to make sure that there's no bugs in the lettuce. Right? So, I mean, it's the most detailed-oriented practice at the same time that it's the most cosmic vision. It's the head in the clouds, it's the feet on the ground, and it allows us to exist in multiple dim dimensions simultaneously. Because remember, the Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. Right? So it's not, it's not so simple. It's not so simple what's going on. Remember, all the Rebbes bring from this word mitzvah. Mitzvah is four letters that ends with vav -hei. The Yudke Vavke, Hashem's holiest name, is four letters, which also ends with Vav He. But wait a second, we have a difference here. The, what about the first two letters? First two letters of Hashem's name is Yudin He. The first two letters of Mitzvah are, are Mem and Sadi. But there are certain Kabbalistic letters of exchange. And there's a system which is actually from the Talmud, from the Gemara itself. If you want to look it up, it's in Mesech to Shabbos, page Kovdalet. It's called Atbash. And in Atbash, it, explain, it explains how one letter can be turned into another le letter. And so believe it or not, Yud becomes Mem and He becomes Sadi. So the actual word Mitzvah, the first two letters, refer to this exalted Yud and He. Right? And the last two letters of Hashem's name, Vav and He, refer to these dimensions. So when you do a mitzvah, you're connecting yourself to this world and to the beyond world that's not even visible to you. But it's cloaked in this memsadi, right? In this mitzvah. So mitzvahs are portals, not just to other dimensions, but to this dimension as well. You see, because this dimension, even though it appears to be on some level, very logical, you spill a full glass of water, the water tumbles out, right? You drop a ball, it hits the ground. There seems to be a, a natural order to this world, a cause and effect. But this world is as mystical and mysterious <laughs> as the other worlds, right? And the problem is, is that, you know, there's a quote that I always like from Vladimir Nabokov, the, the novelist, where he, 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 he wrote, please, do not understand me too quickly. <laughs> it's like this world, the, the, a lot of the dangers of this world come from deciding that you've understood it too quickly. And then all of a sudden you have cognitive dissonance where you see all the mysteries of this world, which is really the essential reality of this world, and then you start blocking it out and then you start denying it because you can't absorb it into your logical system which was flawed in its premise. Because as Reb Shlomo said just classically, this world does not work in a one plus one equals two way. That's not this world. People think that's this world. I turn the, the key and the car starts. Right? 
I put one foot into the other and now I'm one foot further along the path. Okay, that's also true. But there's more to it than that. <laughs> so, so what are we going to do? Right? What are we going to do? One thing that we we have to resist ourselves from doing is just understanding things too quickly. And, you know, to stay in a state of humility, to stay in a place of receiving. We discussed this point last week, but it's really been staying with me. Rabbi Shapiro Olavashalom said that, you know, every month has a tribe that's assigned to it. And the month of Elul, which we're in right now, is the, is the tribe of God. Gimel Dalit, God. That was one of the, the sons of, of Yaakov and, and Leah. And if you look at the naming of God by Leah in, 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 in the Torah, and you look at the Rashi there, Rashi tells you that God means mazel. So as we're entering the sort of like the, the home stretch toward Rosh Hashanah, this is a time of mazel. And Mazel, Rabbi Shapiro got very, said it very strongly, do not translate it as luck. This is a total perversion of the idea. Mazel means a divine flow. And you have to stay in a state of receiving. This is staying in a state of humility, right? This divine flow. And the mistake that people make, even religious people make, is they say, step one is all good. Everything comes, everything comes from God. That's great. Now step two, here's the problem. And now it's mine. But I said everything comes from God. But now it's mine. Once you say now it's mine, or once you start thinking now it's mine, you've, you've cut it off. You've cut it off, and now you've appropriated it for yourself. And you want to stay in a state of receiving. You want to stay in a state of flow. Right? So, you know, this phrase came to me this week when I was thinking about that and some other things, applying that to other things. And this phrase came to me, which is, nothing is anything until it's something. (laughs) Nothing is anything until it's something. You know, we just, we want to take something that's not yet there and we want to make it ours already. But when we're making it ours and it's not anything yet, then we're cutting off the flow. Or potentially we are. Potentially we are. These are just, everyone has to use the, their, the, the wisdom of their own minds and life to figure out how best to apply this in, in the realest way. But this is the concept anyway. Okay. So now I want to tell you something from the Chidush Rim. So it says... It says, when you go out to war against your enemies, that's the, the initial phrase of, of Kitsetse, the, the Parsha. So it sounds like a very nice, a very logical um, streak. When you go out to war against your enemies. Okay, good, good. Except he does something very, very deep. He puts a, he puts a comma in there. And remember, the, the Torah is endlessly deep. And you can, you can stop a phrase, you can stop a phrase, and then just that phrase in and of itself is going to mean something. Of course, you have to make sure that you're not um, using that to learn something that's against what the Torah says. You, you know what I'm saying? So, but if you're, if, you're, if you're reading it in this way in order just to, to understand the depths of what God is saying, then, then these types of methodologies are are actually encouraged because they allow you to, to, to find more and more in the Torah. So he puts a comma, Kitsetsei, when you go out, comma. So when you, what does that mean, when you go out? So every year we're reading these parshas, these sections of the Torah before Rosh Hashanah. And the war that's being referred to here is the war against a person's Yitzhahara, meaning to say, the war against one's own negative inclination. 
So he says, when you go out, what does that mean, when you go out? When you go out from the clutches of the Yetzirah, that's when the war begins. Very, very amazing reading. Meaning to say, you know, if you can walk by a McDonald's and, 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 and you've gotten to the point where you don't have this tremendous struggle, should I walk in, should I not walk in? You, you've got that. You, you, you've gotten to your, yourself to a place where, where things like that are, are no longer warring with you. You've, you've on some level mastered the, 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 the basics of a, of, a, of a Torah lifestyle. That's when the war begins. That's that's a that's a that's a fascinating that's a fascinating understanding. Meaning, okay, so, so, so you're not doing that, and you're and you are doing this. Okay, good, good. That's very good. That's a level. Now, what do you have to show for yourself? Now, what growth are you going to present? That's. That, that, that's a big thought. So, his Sefer, Lekutei Arim, brings another thought. And I, I found this fascinating also. Really fascinating. He says in the name of the Pshischa Rebbe, that was one of his Rebbe's. Remember, it goes from the, um, it goes from the Chos of Lublin, the Seer of Lublin, to the Yid Kodesh to the Pshiska Rebbe, to the Kotzka Rebbe, right? And then to the Chudush Rim, to the Gera Rebbe. That was, that, was, that was the line. So the Chudush Rim, his, his Rebbe's Rebbe, the, the Kotzka was a contemporary of the Chudush Rim. So before the, before the Kotzka was the Pshiska Rebbe. So he says, he, he quotes the Torah from him, fascinating idea. See, we have something called Pardes. Pardes is a um, an acronym. It means it means the four basic levels of um, Torah understanding, and it means garden or orchard, very beautifully. So the the Pei stands for Pshat. The Resh stands for Remez. Pshat means the the simple level. Remez is already hinting around to deeper meanings. The Dalid is for drush, which is a homiletical, sort of more, say, ethical sort of extraction. And the Samech is Sod, which means the secret level, right? Like the, like the Kabbalistic level. And um, I saw a great teaching um, that if you don't have the, 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 the Samech, the Sod, the secret level, that it just spells the word parrot, not pardes. Parrot means a donkey. <laughs> right? That gets us back to our initial conversation, right? About who's crazy? Who's crazy, right? So if you don't have the depths, if you don't have the greater context of the reality that we're living in, then what are you? You're like a parrot. You're like a donkey, right? Because you're just seeing what's like immediately before your eyes, and that's it. So... So the pshat, the pshat, the basic, the basic level, is um, is when you go out for war. Like they're they're not talking about war against the Yetzirah, battling your evil inclination. They're talking about the actual halachas of fighting an actual war, real war, like military, like countries against countries, that type of thing. Now listen to what the Pshiska Rebbe says. Something very fascinating. He says. But today, the pshat is when you battle against your Yetzirah. That's, that, and that's all it said. But I want to work with that for a moment. Because that to me is like a very, it sounds like, okay, what did, what did he just do there? Like, what was that? Like, what did you just say? I didn't really get it. He basically, normally speaking, we'd say the pshat remains the pshat forever. That's always going to be the pshat. What he seems to be suggesting, and this is just my own analysis of it, is that there's a, we say, we talk about Torah Chaim, 
that the Torah is a living organism, right? Now you have to be careful with this because a lot of people go, oh, because the Torah is a living organism, I'm going to say this is now the law and that's now the law and I'm going to change it all that I like because you said it's alive. So this, this, this is a misuse of this idea. This would be a, a misuse of this idea. The, it, it has to be guided with the utmost wisdom and the utmost das Torah and Ruch HaKodesh. Right? Because we're talking about we're talking about in order to understand how it's alive and how it's evolving and how it's moving, you have to be connected to this world, you have to be connected to the next world, you have to be very, very holy, and, and you have to be a giant in Torah, okay? But that doesn't mean it isn't alive, and that doesn't mean it isn't moving, okay? So, so for him to say that now Pshat is the battle against Yitzhahara, that it suggests that there's some sort of internal ebb and flow and dynam- dynamism within partings is 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 very very cool. Now, what did it, what did what does he mean by that? Does he mean that this time of year that's pshat? Does he mean that? I mean, he is saying this, you know, about a hundred years before the establishment of the state of Israel. Does he mean in that period in history? Now it's pshat. What 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 does he mean by that? I, I I don't know exactly, but but on some level, it seems to be that a more hidden meaning, he says, is now in fact the revealed meaning. That this is what the text is basically telling us right now. Now, I want to take this a step further. Again, this is my own analysis. You see, there was a, a great revolution that took place in terms of the understanding of the Torah, which is the revealing of the inner dimensions of the Torah, the panemius of the Torah, sort of the Kabbalistic, Hasidic. Remember, what's, what's the difference between um, Kabbalah and, and Hasidus, right? What's the difference between it? So Rabbi Kaplan says, Kabbalah brings human beings up to God. Hasidus brings God down to human beings. Okay? And, and Almost all of Hasidus, basically, is just explaining Kabbalistic thought in a way that's, that's, that's understandable, basically, that, that we can relate to, that we can wrap our minds around, and to understand that the presence of God everywhere. Remember, historically speaking, the Hasidic movement played a, an absolutely life-saving role in the, in the Jewish world, because the Jewish people had become very... Um, very segmented. There was a, 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 a small band because we lived in, you know, it's so funny that people go, like someone was just, I just heard it yesterday. Someone said that they were like one of the few Jewish families living in San Diego. This is maybe 50 years ago, right? And she said like everyone in the community, no one knew any Jews. They were the only Jews that they knew. And she said that they basically didn't have any money. And people would come up to her and say, you're Jewish? Oh, you're rich, right? You know, I mean, the, the, the joke is is that anyone who like would open up any Jewish history book would see that we've lived in utter poverty for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years because the anti-Semitic governments refused to let us participate with the rest of the population or own land or have any, any real jobs. But something actually, you know, something amazing actually happened during that period, though. And when we talk about that period, we're talking about probably a couple of thousand years, by the way, is that all of the brain power of the Jewish people was not being siphoned off by secular society, and it all went laser-like into understanding the Torah. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand what that means? You look at any top field, and I'm just talking facts right now. I'm not, not, not being chauvinistic or anything like that. I'm just talking simple reality. Look at any of the top scientific or technical fields in the world and look at the leaders in those fields. And you'll see that disproportionately, they're Jewish. Now, imagine all of that brain power for 2,000 years only being focused in one direction. And that's toward the Torah. Now, I'm holding up the book right now. Half of this is English. Do you know how few pages we're talking about? 
2,000 years of the greatest minds in the world concentrating on essentially a few dozen pages and never running out of things to say? Never? That tells you that what, what's going on in this text. I mean, I'll tell you something. I, I, I saw something years ago when I was in college, which was the PhD thesis titles um, that people were doing in Shakespeare studies. They have run out of things to say. <laughs> I mean, it is... I mean, and in sentences written, you, you understand that it's English. That's an R. That's an S. This is definitely English. You can't understand a sentence. I went to Harvard. I'm telling you, I can't understand a sentence of these things. This, to me, is is evidence. <laughs> I mean, not that not that we have to contrast Shakespeare and and the Torah, right? Because who made Shakespeare? God made Shakespeare. Shakespeare is just another expression of God, right? I'm not putting down Shakespeare, God forbid, but I'm trying to tell you how amazing, amazing it is that, that minds that great could concentrate on a few pages and, and never run out, never run out of things to say. You know, Rabbi Shlomo said something very, very beautiful. He says, you know, if you go to any shir, any, any, any class, you see that the rabbi, if he's learning out of a book, right after, after the class, he closes the book and he kisses the book. He said, did you ever see a, a Shakespeare professor at the end of a lecture pick up the book and kiss the book? Because our relationship to the text is, is beyond. It's, an, it's not a mind thing. It's a, it's, it's a mind thing, it's a heart thing, and it's a soul thing. It's a completely, it's another dimension. It's another dimension. So, so let's get back to this idea. What, what, what happened was, because of the intense poverty that the Jewish people were suffering, everyone had to work. So only really the greatest scholars could be funded by the community to sit and learn. So and it became clear, like, who, who are the geniuses in the community? Those people were supported by the community, and the rest were, like, carrying buckets of water around. I mean, people who could be, like, teaching physics at Columbia University were walking around carrying buckets of water for 2,000 years. I'm not joking. I'm not joking, okay? Or they were cutting down trees, okay? That's what they were doing. So... So, so they felt very disconnected. They felt like you can only be holy unless you're sitting in front of a book. And, and so there was this, this tremendous sense of spiritual disenfranchisement that, that the Jewish people were experiencing. And then comes along like the Baal Shem Tov and this whole movement and says, what, you think God is only in front of an open book? <laughs> you don't think that God is surrounding you in the forest and God is like, you know, lifting your hands to swing the axe against the tree and making the tree grow and feeding you? You don't think that you're interacting with God on a moment-by-moment -moment basis just because you're not in front of an open holy text? So it literally, it, it, it saved the life. It saved the life of the Jewish people. And it spread like wildfire because it was the truth. You know, one of the very moving things about this morning, I started with this story that happened this morning. This man who came should be blessed and long life. And he put on tefillin. So why what happened that he wasn't putting on tefillin? Right? So he went through five death camps and three wars. And he was in Europe at the time when a part of the religious establishment 
a, a good part of it, didn't understand what the Zionist movement was. And in fairness to those rabbis, a lot of the Zionist movement was 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 re rejectionist in terms of their their secular embrace. But that that came from tremendous frustration. Came from tremendous frustration. And the thing was is that even the Zionist movement was a utopian movement in and of itself. Meaning they 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 were trying to put heaven down to earth, but they were doing it in the best way that they understood. But they had sort of left the guidance of the Torah in terms of doing it. But at the same time, they were connecting to a very large part of the Torah, which is the holiness of the land of Israel. So because they, they were rejecting aspects of Torah, the rabbis in Europe were, didn't, didn't trust their leadership of the Jewish people for good reason. But it's way more complicated because you have something called World War II and Hitler happening at the same time. And so people were being discouraged from going to Israel where the belief was after the fact that that may have been perhaps the best place to go to survive. So you have a man like this today who is angry. He's angry. He's angry. He's, he's, and, and he expresses that anger in sort of this form of a boycott. But there's something much more profound going on here. And Rabbi Wolfson says this, and many people say this, which is if anyone tells you they don't believe in God, they're lying. They're lying. Most of the people who say it are angry at God. It's not that they don't believe. They're angry at God, and they don't know how to express their anger. They don't know how to express their anger. And if anything, their denial of God is in the strangest way an affirmation of God. And but what I mean by that, it sounds a little twisted, but what I mean by that is because they say, God, I know God is good, and God would never allow that to happen. And, be, and I'm protecting, I'm protecting my soul's knowledge of the goodness of God. Therefore, this God that you're calling God can't exist. Because, but they don't tell you this, the next part, because they're not necessarily even in touch with the next part. Because I know God is good, and I'm not seeing goodness. So I'm going to say God doesn't exist. But of course God exists, because God is good. So, you know, the craziest thing is, is that you know how God exists? You want proof that God exists? Because you exist. Because if you didn't exist, the only way you exist is because God exists. And yet God, in his amazingness, creates us, gives us life, and allows us to say that he doesn't exist. And he goes, okay, they'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. I mean, if you want a, 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 a further proof of a more loving, patient God, you won't find it. Now for some questions and answers. Oh, yeah, okay. um, this is two part. The, yeah. You were talking about the 2,000 years of poverty yeah. and the brilliant minds who were carrying buckets of water. So, first of all, I, I missed two portions of that. So when, when did they become so learned? I mean, in the 2,000 years of poverty, I'm not talking about the Torah scholars. I'm talking about the, the brilliant Men who yeah, they, so I'm when, saying they, they were natively brilliant if they had been given if they had been given an opportunity. And I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example. If you look at um, 
Just look at the American population in World War II. Mm -hmm. the, 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 my father was a professor. He was a professor of psychology. Mm -hmm. His father owned a little grocery store. Right. What, do you think my grandfather, God forbid, was dumb? And then he just happened to have a smart son who became a professor? Well, he, I mean, he was he, not making <laughs> is dumb or smart. Yeah, no, no, no. But what, what I'm telling you is that if any of these people who were water carriers right. were given the opportunity to have an education, right. they would have been, you know, we would have been having like, you know, whatever. We would have had laptops 200 years ago, 300 years ago. Okay, well then you I, know? Mis yeah. I misunderstood you. I thought you were saying that they were educated at that level, not that they were innately smart at that level. No, they, many of them, many of them were tremendous Torah scholars. And I'll tell you something that I heard from Reb Shlomo, which is that, um, in Poland, they had uh, like shoemakers, and this is not—they—they they all had guilds, okay? And this is true. This is true, and it wasn't just among the shoemakers, by the way, or the tailors. They had this with tailors as well. They would have like almost like um, you know, when you think of those factories, like in the early 1900s, where you have rows of tables and then rows of tables behind those rows of tables, right? And everyone is either working at a sewing machine or they're stitching or whatever it is, right? So they had that. And then they had someone sitting in the front while they were doing the manual label, labor. This person was learning out loud through Shas, through the Talmud. So they were literally learning all day Talmud while they were stitching clothing. So yeah, so you had some, you had many, many, many examples of people who were simple day laborers, who were tremendous Torah scholars, who were going through the Talmud over and over and over again. Unbelievable. So, part two of yeah. that is the transition from 2,000 years of poverty to... To getting an opportunity. No, to people assuming that if you're Jewish you must be rich. What was that? This is, this is more of a, a, a contemporary thing. You know, right. where where once we had these opportunities, mm -hmm. people became very successful in their fields. Right. But but also, one of the um, one of the reasons for this is because um, in the uh, in the Christian world, they one of the very few jobs that they allowed Jews to have were um, moneylenders. And, and so it was a type of thing where Jews were literally forced into this field because there were no opportunities available to them. And then, of course, a moneylender becomes inherently a very hated person because a moneylender lends money and then has to collect the debt. That's, that's the job. So now all of a sudden, who, who borrows money? Someone who doesn't have money. So then when you go to collect someone who didn't have the money to begin with, you think they're going to like you? They're going to hate you. So, so it, it, it was this vicious cycle where all opportunities were taken away. And then the opportunities that were, that were given, you know what another opportunity was given? In, in Poland, they were allowed to have liquor licenses. So, so, okay, great. So you're lending money to people who don't have money, who now are very angry at you, right? Or you're dealing with the, the rabble who are alcoholics and probably violent. So what kind of, how do you survive in a situation like that? So going out to war, um, obviously against our gates of Hara, what does the beautiful captive woman represent in that marshal? Okay, good. So now you're reminding me what I wanted to say before. Because I really, I wanted to say something deeper about the whole dynamic nature of Pardes and something becoming shot when, when it wasn't shot previously, and and that the Hasidic movement and then I kind of veered into a history lesson about the Jewish history there, but but about the Hasidic movement basically uncovered the depths of the Torah, and now when you look at the Torah, if you if you if you've been fortunate enough to, to be educated in terms of how to actually read the verses and things like that, you realize that's pshat now. That the that the inner aspect of the Torah has become pshat. Has become the basic understanding of the Torah. 
Like that actually is what the Torah is saying. You know, yes, it's true. It's also talking about weights and measures and they have to be accurate. I'm not, I'm not saying otherwise. Of course that's true. But it, it feels to me like historically as we've become, as our consciousnesses have expanded more, those deeper levels of pardes are increasingly becoming pshat, the basic understanding of the text itself. And if is the Pshiska Rebbe saying this? That's what I'm seeing in his words. He might say, I respectfully disagree. <laughs> or I just disagree. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's, that's what I wanted to say. Yeah. Yesterday you talked about the Shar straight. Right. The concept that, um, um, that um, if you go down, the whole idea is like if you're going down a smoothly road, but your, your thoughts are Yashar, yes. that's what the Torah means, that that's what straight is. Right. Is that the same as what you were talking, I mean, it's kind of related to the heads in the cloud, the feet on the ground, it's all part of the same idea, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, so Rabbi Shapiro, Olav uh, Shalom, says that that to be a shar, to, to be straight. So, so th- this is a very great quality that a person can have, and it's used as a compliment. Like, for instance, if they you say, well, you know, I'm thinking about doing business with this guy, or I'm thinking about setting up this guy with um with my daughter, or with another person, like. How would, what kind of person is he? And if the, if, like a great compliment would, someone would be to say, he's Yashar, meaning he's strict. He, he's, not, he's not playing games. He's like a very honest person. And so that means, that's what Yashar means. So, so Rabbi Shapiro says something deep. He says that you would think that someone who walks a straight path, like for instance, it's because the path itself is straight. So you're walking down this straight path. But if that's the case, then really what you're describing is the path being straight, not the person being straight. So what does it mean to be a straight person? So he says to be a straight person, to be a yashar human being, is someone who walks in a twisted path and yet brings clarity to it. <laughs> that's, that's someone who's yashar. And that's why one of the names of Breshis, the first book of the Torah, is Sefer Yashar, the book of the upright, or the book of the straight ones. Because Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov were walking in a very muddled world, and yet they brought clarity to this very confusing realm. 